Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books Podcast. My name is Ikir Englander, and today I have the gift to host Adam Brown and to discuss his book, Judging Privileges, Holocaust Ethics, Representation, and the Gray Zone. Before we start the dialogue, a few words about the importance of my book. As years pass, more and more Holocaust survivors are passing from our lives, and we are losing our life witness those who experience the events of the war. In other words, we are the first generation of memory. As a Jewish leader and as a scholar, I constantly dealing with questions as what are the areas of the Holocaust that the survivors choose or mentally could not touch in depth. These places that we, third generation of memory, should put the spotlight on. One of these subjects are those Jews who were the communication link between the Nazis and the Jewish community. These Jews are the subject of this book. But the book touches also the question of how we will remember the Holocaust in general. Many of the young generation meet the Holocaust for the first time, not by listening to a survivor or reading the survivor's words, but by watching movies and by digital media. In 2019, Eva's story was published in the Instagram, a series of short videos that illustrate Eva Heyman's story in the style that characterizes the media, under the title Eva Stories. The videos went viral and attracted worldwide interest. It is such a gift to speak and learn with Dr. Adam Brown, who is a senior lecturer in media studies in Deakin University in Australia. Welcome, Adam. Can you share with us what have made you to write this unique book? Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, the question of where this book came from, what brought me to write it, it goes back a little bit before I guess I even knew it was a book. Uh, I was doing a PhD on the Holocaust, but that arose from me uh, several years earlier than that. Uh, discovering a movie back in 2001 through a roommate when I was a first-year university student. It was a Jewish film festival in the city of Melbourne, and my friend told me about, well, he just showed me the program, and it had this film called The Grey Zone, which was Tim Blake Nelson's film that I actually ended up writing on in the last chapter of the book. And I didn't really know anything about it. I was aware of the Holocaust um, because I was about to study it the year after in my history major. But I went along, I actually got the train to the city and it was a one-hour train ride and I actually still remember I took along Primo Levi's book, The Drowned and the Saved, and I read the chapter on the grey zone on the train on the way to seeing the film. Uh, And the grey zone chapter obviously informs the book quite heavily and is really the reason it exists. 
and then the film became a nice bookend for it. So it was kind of a really serendipitous moment where um, just by chance I heard about a film and it really altered the direction of my life. I went on to study a history major and a literature major side by side and I did an honours degree, which The Grey Zone played a key part, one of three films I looked at, and then the PhD really grappled this issue that comes out of the grey zone of moral ambiguity, moral compromise, ethical dilemmas of victims. And I still hadn't really articulated, especially in my honours year, what that exact dilemma was. But eventually, sometime into the PhD, I really um, began to to categorise or conceptualise what I was looking at as so-called privileged Jews and I was reading and uh, watching a lot more media and different stories of it and that's where the book eventually came from. I was asked at many conferences during the PhD uh, why I was studying the Holocaust, especially when I was doing this topic, and usually the questions that began were not so much why why this topic, but uh, am I Jewish or am I German? And when the answers to both of those questions were no, people were understandably perhaps um, somewhat confused. And in the end, uh, what's really struck me about this topic of uh, the ethical dilemmas of victims but also the Holocaust in general is its universal applicability and what it tells us about it, humanity. And that's what this, where this topic really jumped at me and why the book came to be, because that uh, question of what it means to be human, um, while a very extreme context and environment, um, the Holocaust obviously still continues to give us a lot of insight, not necessarily concrete answers, but a lot of insight into the same kinds of things that Primo Levi himself was grappling with years after surviving the camps. So that's that's really where the Holocaust um, came came to intersect with my life, and I actually ended up being a volunteer uh, for many years at the Jewish Holocaust Centre in Melbourne and became very close friends with a number of survivors. And I might come back and reflect on their reception and their engagement with this issue as I was making my way through the PhD, holding film screenings, public film screenings for a general audience at the centre every month for four years. And so my journey through this topic was also being informed by the many people that I was working with side by side at the centre for some years. And that was a really, a really powerful, a, a, quite a confronting thing, obviously, as well. Um, and, and I guess the best peer reviewers for your work are not necessarily at academic conferences when you're volunteering at a, a Jewish Holocaust museum. But uh, that was really the, the kinds of the milestones to where I was coming from. Um, all the things from watching cinema, I mean, I saw Schindler's List in the 90s, and that probably sparked my interest in the Holocaust as well. But ironically, both in my honours and PhD thesis and and then travelling through into the book, I, I sharply criticised a lot of what happened in Schindler's List. But at the same time, that brought me into this area as well. So Holocaust uh, literature, Holocaust history and Holocaust film kind of all converged in my story because I was a Bachelor of Arts student majoring in literature and history and I gained a strong interest in Holocaust film through both of those areas and uh, that's sort of all these intersections just sort of fell into place, I guess, and that's that's where this book came to be from. Thank you, Adam. I, I really, it's, it's so interesting that you came 
to learn more deeply about the Holocaust by a movie. And I think that now we are in a very, very interesting time in history where the Holocaust survivors, um, naturally, they are going to be less and less with us. And then coming generation are going to learn everything about the Holocaust from the media, from movies. And this is where the importance of, of, of your book. So if I go deep, I, I want to go to the term. Can you share with us a little bit more about the term privileges? What's the source of this term? Um, is during the Holocaust already people call them privileges? Um, or when it starts, when people or scholars or, or survivors start speaking about this term, And also, since a lot of your book is about the question, should we judge the privileges or not? And my question is, don't we judge them just by calling them in this term? Mm. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it, it does have a bit of a history as well throughout the, the, the trajectory of where this book came from and where it ended up being. I still recall when I began writing uh, this book that my first idea of how to conceptualize, categorize this group of victims, and I suppose before I talk about the term, I should say that the so-called privileged Jews are a, a, a category that has been formed in in part by me but really um, talked about in lots of different avenues even at the time the different languages involved mean that the term privileged itself might have different nuances in terms of what the you know protection and the different terms that were being used at the time um, but the the category of prisoners who were forced to cooperate and even the term cooperation has been debated and obviously it's better than collaboration but even some historians have said that cooperation doesn't really match up either um, this this term uh, encapsulates uh, so-called um, you know uh, privileged prisoners in the camps and the ghettos from the Jewish councils the Judenrat or the Ordnungsdienst, the Jewish police in the ghettos uh, through to the carpos the Zonder commandos or special squads forced to work in the crematoria um, different you know multi-layered hierarchy different people different victims within the multi-level hierarchy that the Nazis created so it's a kind of a nebulous category in itself but it's been made clear because of the judgments that have preceded my looking at this subject but you make a really good point the term itself calling uh, the the group of prisoners privileged does seem to uh, layer on judgment and there's a couple of things that that come to mind with this initially when I was writing the book or writing the PhD the first category that and I don't know how much of the draft material this this actually kind of you know went into it how many months I was using this but my first use of the term was compromised Jews now they were that was also in inverted commas and my use of the term privilege is always got quote marks around it but compromised Jews that's where I began even though I was trying to investigate interrogate uh, unpack the idea of judgment I was unable to escape any uh, kind of um, subjective or uh, you know loaded terminology so privileged Jews came about in part because it was better than that, in part because it did have some connection with a lot of the ways in which these prisoners had been talked about over time, both um, shortly, you know, during, shortly after and long after the events. 
but also because uh, it, it th- there was a way that I needed to explicitly and in a kind of a meta-textual way draw attention to the fact that this was a provocative way of categorizing prisoners because in a sense, uh, and I, you, you know, you can use the term privileged victims and so on, but uh, these these prisoners who held positions uh, did have different um, titles and the judgments have varied uh, among different people and different media on different um, groups of these victims within this broad umbrella. But what I ended up doing in the book was to start the entire book with what I called a personal note. And I tried to get as meta as I could there. It was just over, um, well, actually, this was only in the PhD, and then I layered it into the first introductory chapter. Um, I ended up having in my PhD a personal note on judgment and privileged Jews. And it was really unpacking this idea of using inverted commas, and that makes its way into the book, but not as kind of a prefacing comment in the same way. There's always a limitation to that, but I felt very strongly that using the inverted commas would at least flag in an aesthetic way, as much as a substantive way, that it was at least being used ironically. Uh, And what was interesting uh, to share something that is obviously not in the book, during the process of publication, the copy editor had removed every single use of quote marks around the word privileged after my first use of it. And I ended up having to have a a collegial but nonetheless a a lengthy kind of conversation slash debate just to keep the quote marks because that was the issue. It was more so the awkwardness or the jarring fact that I was using quote marks around privileged all the time and not the fact that I was using the term. On the other hand, I will be completely transparent and say one of my friends, a, a, a child survivor of the Holocaust uh, who was at my the launch of this book, who uh, continues to, to volunteer at the Jewish Holocaust Centre, uh, he actually said to me that um, the subject matter, not so much the the title, the the use of that phrase, but the subject matter, um, which includes the use of the phrase and the focus on these this group of victims, he said that he 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 would have a copy of the book, but he he wouldn't be able to open it for now um, because it was just too painful, uh, and he he was worried about the the title in some ways as um, having counterproductive kind of effects. Uh, so it has been a provocative one, but I think after even the Holocaust survivors who I worked with, after I gave presentations there, after I spoke about this at conferences and this question of calling a group of victims privileged did come up uh, quite often, uh, I think that people started to get what I was doing with it. So I was interrogating judgment and representation. That doesn't mean I'm objective. And the fact that I'm not Jewish, not German coming into this doesn't mean I'm any more neutral than anyone else. Um, but it, it basically, I just try to flag in as in the most re- self-reflexive ways that I can, and I do this a few times in the book, that I myself could not help but sympathise with certain of the so-called privileged prisoners, such as the Zonda Commandos, particularly since my engagement with the films with uh, with them, in contrast, say, to my um, perception of uh, Rumkowski through the various representations I engage with. So I'm not free of judgment myself, but I think the, one of the main things that I 
took from the experience of studying this group, but also tried to communicate within the book is that as long as we're aware of that judgment, the paucity of language is something that I write about early on in the book. The paucity of language is such that there are no words that are not laden with judgment. There, there is no way to actually talk about these things without passing judgment, potentially at least being perceived as doing that. And Primo Levi himself really gestured to that when he was writing about the grey zone. You know, the grey zone is needed, but um, people simplify things. We need to make sense of the world by simplifying it. And I don't remember his exact words, but basically he says that the world would be an uncontrollable, chaotic mess if we don't simplify it. And one of the key ways we do that is through language. So the more the best that I could do was at least to explain where I was coming from, use quote marks all through the book, no matter how hard I had to fight for it, and be as reflexive in my own subjectivity. Uh, and, you know, for depending on one's perspective uh, on, on the analysis, I tried not to judge the victims I was writing about. Um, I therefore, there was that issue of passing judgment on you know, which is what academics essentially do um, on on certain representations and and creators of those. So right. yeah, it's it's quite a complex one, and um, uh, hopefully that helps answer it. Yes, for sure, for sure. Thank you, Adam. Um, so the first chapter, um, the first part of the book, focuses on um, the gray zone and the privileges um, in the literature and thoughts of um, of Primo Levi, and I want to. I want to quote um, Primo Levi, um, very important, I mean, very interesting quotation that you bring in the book. And he, wrote, he, he said like that, Many things were then said and done among us, but of this it is better that there remain no memory. And in a generation or when we try so much to remember the Holocaust and we try to we wish, we have a wish that we will capture it and we will bring it to the next generation and for the next generation as a whole narrative. Um, Come such a sentence by Primo Levi and he said, some things needs to be forgotten. And I wonder what we can learn from that and what we can learn from that about judging the privileges. Um, Can you elaborate for us? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean... I'll come back to Levy, but one of my other experiences during the writing of this book, it was probably during my PhD, was when I was at the Sydney Jewish Museum and I was talking, I believe, to a child of Holocaust survivors there who worked there as a, as a guide in the museum. And we got talking and, and as usually happens, um, my topic, my theme of my research came up in conversation and I remember that person saying they don't talk about this to visitors to the museum. This is a child of survivors because it's too complicated or it's just too early. I've heard this quite a bit as well, 50 plus years after, you know, when I started to, to research more than 50 plus years after the events, that it was too early to discuss these things. And I'd heard that uh, um, among people I was working with in, in Melbourne as well. and. 
that's a really provocative idea. When when is it not too early came into my mind. And in a sense, what Levy is is suggesting there, and there's been some interesting interpretations of what he was actually referring to there, because I believe that line might be one of the there's a lot of psychologically based uh, biographies on on Levy and I believe that might be interpreted as also making reference to a a murder that may have happened in the trains on the way uh, to Auschwitz of someone who was perceived to be a collaborator. Um, I, I can't remember entirely that but there are these things that Levy was grappling with quite often and what to omit, what to forget, the power of forgetting and some things, you know, you would argue memory is important and, and in certain contexts some form of forgetting is necessary as well, uh, is a provocative one when we come to the Holocaust. It, collectively and individually, that issue of what can be not talked about, uh, the the problem with my uh, my the way that I perceive this area of, of so-called privileged Jews is that there had been and there's you know probably far less so now um, there there certainly was a taboo at ground level on talking about this in certain contexts and so I don't think Primo Levi was on his own in that regard um, we've seen especially in cinema that that certainly changed and that may or may not be a mostly productive thing given that you know we're in the the age of the anti-heroic and moral ambiguity is the flavor of the decade and so on in cinema so there's some interesting cultural dynamics uh at work there as well but this has certainly been a more of a time where these issues that Levy may have been making reference to. It, it's obviously it's impossible to know exactly what he was referring to. Uh, these issues have come to the fore now. So even in the, the the kind of chronology of Levy's own writings, there is a lot of evidence of him revising his descriptions of certain victims in the camps, even in different versions, different editions of his first memoir, If This Is a Man. So there's an interesting kind of subjectivity to Levy himself. And that first or that first substantive chapter where I actually look at the writing of Levy, the evolution of his ideas on the grey zone, and I, I look at that throughout his entire um, the all the literature that he put together. The the entire book could have been about Levy, and and to be honest, in the early stages of writing it, almost was. Um, but so many people have written on Levy, I I decided to do something slightly different. Um, the, there's so many different changes in trajectory in Levy's thinking and it's always impossible to know exactly um, how much he was preoccupied with this but from his writing even before he was using the term the grey zone shortly after the war he was thinking about this issue and so it probably took perhaps it took some years before he himself could conceptualize this area that he ended up talk, calling the grey zone and he used other phrases which can be loosely translated as grey zoners and so on which I go into in the book so even he was struggling with the language victim behavior uh, there's a lot of lot in the survivor literature lots of memoirs that talk about and and make reference to things that are probably not talked about in as much detail but that's really the crux of what we also learn about humanity as well and that this clear-cut binary opposition of good and evil doesn't always 
and seldom really sheds light on human experience to the extent that we might like it to. So that's that's probably a long-winded answer to try and get to something there um, around what Levy was saying, but I, I think that that's such so crucial to the issue that even Levy was struggling to write about this, and he, while he he argued as as I kind of take him as as the launching pad of my book that we should not pass moral judgment on these victims and their behaviour his own writings, even in the chapter on the grey zone, cannot escape from passing judgment. And that's what I talk about as the paradox of judgment, the uh, the inappropriateness of it, but simultaneously the inescapability of it as well. And that's all comes down to that paucity of language that I talked about before. Even with such an articulate, philosophical, amazing writer as Levy who, I mean, half my book could, could have been Levy quotes because you love his writing that much. So uh, even he struggled uh, years later, decades later, when he was trying not to judge these victims who he understood certainly better than I ever can what kind of pressures they faced. So thank you. So Adam, in, in other words, by not writing about something, by keeping them in silence, there is also silence there is also judgment um about the silence which which bring a whole new um you know question that probably will never be answered um about all the materials that we don't have about the holocaust because the survivors decided to um not to share right and not to yeah. share the trauma. And um, this is something that fascinated me as a um, second generation and a, as a third generation of the Holocaust. Um, you know, in Israel, um, what the, the first time that, I mean, again, we, we knew about, or I knew about the Kapos, we knew that they were their, um, the privileges, but the focus was never about them. Um, the first time that I met them was actually in literature by um there is an israeli writer and um, uh, um her name is Savion Librecht and in one of her short stories um it's called Ruchale Mitchatenet that Ruchale uh, she get married and this Ruchale who is a very yiddish name right i mean she is the only daughter for an um a father um, who never spoke about the holocaust but he was there and then one day she come home and she has incredible relationship with her father. And she come home and she said, Abba, father, I'm going to get married. And he's so excited and happy. And he's looking forward to meet the, the groom. Um, and then when she introduced him, um, her future husband, he immediately faints. Um, and then she learned that this boy that she's going to get married with, he is a child of the capo that torture her father. And he just sees the capo every time when he needs to deal with his future son-in-law. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating when we share about the privileges in literature, what we choose to share. Mm. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's interesting, as you say, by not speaking about them, there is judgment. And I think that really, if I will go back to my first experience without knowing it was an experience of a representation of a so-called privileged prisoner, 
it would have been probably in Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List, which I go on to write in the book, in the final chapter on feature film, that because uh, Marcel Goldberg being the main kind of um, privileged to figure in the film is not represented as having any form of ethical dilemmas or only extremely briefly to the point within a three-hour film you would never notice it, because of that, he's essentially one, demonised, two, infantilised, and three, marginalised. And therefore, while you're avoiding that issue but also making as kind of almost an extra or a, a side character enough of an issue, you are doing a huge disservice to a a great many people's suffering and the complexity of their experience. Now, the interesting, the fascinating thing about Marcel Goldberg was that he was actually a very conflicted uh, figure, a very controversial figure who a lot of survivors have praised for saving their lives and others have condemned for, you know, not accepting money in return for helping people or not helping people at all. But after the war, he went on to run or own a factory of some kind and in a sense became an almost Schindler figure after the war. And this sort of, you know, broader story was what I located in, in some of my research. He, after he was, um, after he passed away, he was, um, disinterred, I believe, and moved to a part of the cemetery on the, basically on the demands of, uh, other survivors, um, which was for criminals and prostitutes or something. And so there was a really interesting kind of complexity to a story that was elided in the movie it was left out completely it's in there a little bit more in thomas Keneally's book from which uh, bringing up literature the book from which schindler's list originated but uh, without really going into the survivor story uh, and you know looking at that story that's of a story but not really told um, there's there's some really interesting questions there and i think also, what I started the book with, and really pointing to what you're saying about the the fact that we can never get a lot of the stories, either because they chose not to tell them or they couldn't for one reason or another. And that's also a lot of what preoccupied Levy. Um, most of privileged prisoners did die. Um, they were certainly not accept- the exceptions to the rule of the Nazis that all Jews were to be killed. Um, they may have been able to prolong their lives, but they weren't necessarily able to save them, certainly not directly. And I think that's a really important um, distinction that I try to use in the language of the book. But the, the Zonder Commando who were forced to work in Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, all Jewish men, or predominantly is a few non-Jewish men, some accounts have, but um, Jewish men who were forced to, for an average or a maximum of roughly three months to do the most horrific, indescribable work, many of those men uh, wrote manuscripts and buried them. And I think we only have a roughly half a dozen that were discovered and, and kept. Now, a lot of those manuscripts are only half com- coherent because a lot of the words have faded. Most of the manuscripts have um, been lost because of um, Poles who came into the camp and were looking for, in the anti-Semitic um, way, looking for 
the, um, the the gold fillings, looking for gold in among the the ashes of the crematoria. So you know this this kind of these small amount of stories of the Zonda Commando that we can get a hold of, and even within that, I quote the uh, a Polish Jew Zelman Lewenthal. Uh, he writes about. Uh, being ashamed of one another and we dared not look one another in the face. I admit that I too, and this is full of ellipses and we don't know exactly what he was writing, it appeared that my actions too were the truth is that one wants to live at any cost. One wants to live because one lives, because the whole world lives. He, and at other times, uh, he and other writers within the Zonda Commando were immensely critical of themselves through their guilt of what they were doing, but also of each other. There was a lot of distinctions drawn between different crematorium workers. Even in that testimony coming from literally the bowels of the crematoria, we have judgment. We have uh, disrupted language. We've got language that has every third word or more is now indecipherable. But we've still got judgment. We've still got some kind of meaning, but we've also got an impossibility of avoiding the judgment that we know we shouldn't be passing. Um, but even the people there uh, couldn't escape it. So that's kind of the most wonderful and tragic metaphor for me is that the people who were doing that work were also starting the representation of so called privileged Jews and ask begging that question of you know, what would you have done, which I might come back to later. So, th- yes. So I, I, I want to, you mentioned the questions about guilt and about surviving. And I want to quote from page 55 where you, um, when you quote from Levy, um, a very complicated sentence that I wonder um, how we should read it. So Levy said, um, Levy said the worst survived the selfish, the violent, the collaborators of the gray zone, there were survived, that is, the fittest, the best all died. Now, when Levy, what, what Levy want to teach us and how it's paint the whole, the whole, like the whole group of people who survived in general? Mm. There's been a lot written on what Levy was getting at um, with his, uh, phrase the the distinction between the so-called drowned and the saved and on a more literal sense and in, in part it appears what Levy is talking about is the drowned and the saved those who survived uh, and those who were the saved and those who did not were drowned and there is a seeming connection which is interestingly enough it's very you know shortly after his longer reflection on survivor guilt where we essentially see him connect the the drowned those who died being the best of us as the more moral the more righteous the more you know um less less prone to compromise perhaps and the saved being as he says, the selfish, um, the you know the those who were not the fittest in a spiritual or moral sense, and Levy's own writings do complicate that. Uh, he certainly is. He feels guilt by the very fact that he obtained some shelter and indoor work towards the end of his own incarceration, as due to his chemist background, he he probably wouldn't classify himself in the same category or as the so-called collaborators of the grey zones. 
but that's interesting in itself um, that there's still those distinctions drawn uh, that he can't escape. So what he means by that is, in one sense, as with all things, we, we have to read it critically and, and I think sympathetically because Levy is also racked um, and given his history of um, depression and so on, uh, he's racked by survivor guilt and, and, and other, other things. So this is informed by a lot of things. This key distinction of the book, The Drowned and the Saved, has certainly been hugely influential. But I think there is still that even within his book itself, there is still a, a murkiness as to whether or not it's only a, it's only a survival or um, uh, a, a, those who perished and those who survived. I don't think the distinction uh, is matches up all that well, given that what else he says around that. So it's he's exploring again the potentialities of language and their more so their limitations. Um, but uh, that's you know that without going into a a lot of things that uh, admittedly other people have said about this distinction of the drowned and the saved. That's sort of at least some insight into what I was thinking with it. Uh, he he does you know play with these ideas in if this is a man as well um right from the beginning he was talking about you know the the moral compromise and there's an amazing chapter where he he seems to create a, a bit of a hierarchy through vignettes and uh, i don't know if you're familiar with it but there's paul steinberg who is the survivor a french jewish survivor called uh, henri in levy's book his first memoir if this is a man actually wrote a response to Levy in his own memoir, which was called Speak You Also, A Survivor's Reckoning. And I briefly talk about that in this book, but um, it's it's soul-shattering to hear a survivor so remorseful, so guilty that Levy had perceived him as one of the saved who was not the fittest in a moral sense. Uh, this this teenager, essentially, who'd been through the camps, who'd obtained some kind of privilege but suffered immensely, read Levy's memoir and Levy died before he himself could ever talk to him. Uh, Levy wrote in his memoir that, I would very much like to know what happened to him, uh, but I do not want to meet him again. And that's you know, for a canonical Holocaust author, that's what was written about Paul Steinberg, who then wrote his memoir, a very moving memoir, which I highly recommend, uh, responding to Levy saying, I can't answer everything, but here's a bit more context. It's not an excuse. He's still blaming and judging himself. But you see this conflict throughout these intricate connections between survivor stories uh, published and otherwise. Uh, and, and it's, I mean, it's been an amazing privilege to use the term in a drastically different way for me to be able to engage with these uh, in in the amateur way that I can because you know this is this is really does uh, highlight some amazing things uh, about what it means to be human, what it means to understand our experience, and what it means to try to make sense of the world and our place within it. Thank you, Adam. So I, I would love to, to shift from the place of Primo Levi and literature to, to history. And um, in the chapter about Raoul Hilberg, um, we, you, you show us the amount of collaboration um, or working with, um, like the question of how much the Nazis could do their plans um, without um, using the privileged Jews. 
But one thing that stuck with me in this chapter, and I, I would love if you can, you can help us to understand it better, is the question of how much or how we should understand the reasons of the Judenrat um, to, to work together with the Nazis. And the question of how we, should we judge the actions as they are, or should we try to understand the reasons why they did as they did as historians? And in one, in, in one of the pages in, in, in this chapter, um, you bring the question, um, I think in the name of Hilberg, but um, I apologize if I, uh, if I quote from the wrong one, um, about the question of um, what would happen if the Russians... Um, would come a few months before to that to that specific ghetto because the ghetto survived um, until almost the end of the war, um, but the Russians didn't arrive. And if they would arrive, so the collaborators or the Judenrat would we will not judge them or the the the, the community or the historians will not be judged as um, to to as collaborators, but as heroes. So we see a very, very fine line between the two. And, um, you know, as, as, as someone who works with Jewish theology, I, I think about one of the main leaders in the times of the destruction of the Second Temple. And his name, uh, his name uh, was uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And in the Jewish memory, in the Talmud, they share that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai met with the Roman emperor, and in a way, and the Roman emperor asked him, what do you wish and I will give you as a gift? And he didn't choose to tell him, go away from Jerusalem, but he asked him for three other things. And in the last day of his life, when his students are around his dead bath, uh, bed, they ask him, Rabbi, what do you see? And he, see, he says, I see two directions which are open to me, one to heaven and one to hell, and I don't know in which one I'm going to be taken. And there is something about this sentence, which is a very important in Jewish theology, um, about Jewish leadership in time of crisis that is walking with me. So I would love if you can help us to understand it better. Well, I hope that I'll be able to. I guess the the one thing this was a um, the the chapter on history, historical writing of Raoul Hilberg was probably the latest and the last addition into the into the study. In the end, I, d- I didn't know it was going to be there until uh, until I think it was recommended by my supervisor at the time that I think about this, just because I was broaching so many different platforms and and different media. But it it was a really nice kind of. Uh, segue, but also a way to look in depth at the issue from Primo Levi's writing through to the uh, documentary film by Cloud Landsman Shoah, which I looked at in the subsequent chapter, given that Hilberg was in there. So Hilberg as a figure of history, a figure of history within a film became kind of a centerpiece of the book in some ways. And the, the purpose of the chapter was really to look in a lot of detail at what Hilberg was doing across his writings from the 
initial um, canonical work, uh, The Destruction of the European Jews, and how that it, remarkably consistent, actually, his judgments were, were fairly consistent across, um, but obviously um, changed in, in the detail and so on at times, uh, through to his um, different book, which in a sense was a bit of a response to his lack of reliance on survivor testimony in his, uh, his later book, Perpetrators, Victims, Bystanders, and then he went on to be a, a an editor of sorts on the the publication of Adam Shanyakov's diary, the the Jewish leader in the Warsaw Ghetto, the Jewish leader you mentioned, um, who may well uh, some I'm not sure if it was Hilberg that argued that, or it certainly has been others may well have been a perceived as remembered as a hero was um, was Heim Rumkowski of the Lodge Ghetto. Um, and the, given that the, the Russian army had stopped at that point, um, that was very pivotal to the fate of, of Jews in that ghetto. And so that, that's, that was kind of a really interesting moment where history can turn on a dime in a sense, but Rumkowski is certainly a very, um, very heavily criticised, is probably putting it mildly, um, figure. Um, but even there, Levy saw some ambiguity, and, and Hilberg uh, talks about him um, to some degree in Perpetrators, Victims, Bystanders, which is sort of a tripartite study of those categories. Um, he he does uh, give some attention to Jewish leaders within that um, book, but doesn't specifically focus on them. But the what I tried to do in this chapter, and, and, and I'll take it as a compliment, is if it seemed like I was trying to understand how we should understand and judge these Jewish leaders, because even here, when I'm only trying to unpack what Hilberg was doing in his sort in in his own work, I can't avoid describing, analyzing, and putting forward an almost oppositional view to what Hilberg was the vast majority of the time and in the process criticising Hilberg's representation uh, when I'm writing about these figures. So the fact that I'm writing about Jewish leaders uh, here, in terms of your question, do we judge by their actions or intentions, that that presupposes, I guess, that we can get a very clear-cut understanding of their intentions because, as as I think Levy uh, highlighted even in the case, case of Rumkowski, the intentions were very murky at times. There was always, um, there's never a monodimensional kind of answer that we can look to and the the motivations and the pressures, the, the f- external forces that were really pushing Jewish leaders from all directions and from both directions, from, I guess, below and above, for lack of a better um, metaphor, uh, is, were really intense. Uh, so I, I guess I just fell back on Levy's assertion uh, which or his argument that we cannot pass judgment even on Heim Rumkowski even though he did pass judgment on him through the language and the metaphors he used himself. Uh, So looking at that, I tried to distill what Hilberg was doing, the rhetorical devices he was using, his very controversial, I'd say problematic use of um, visualisation, sort of almost a, a, a kind of a diagram that had no reference but his own judgment, the one of the things that I look at at one point. Um, even Hilberg started to kind of, from his writing at least, started to develop an empathetic perspective 
or at least a more sympathetic perspective for the Jew- the position of Jewish leaders. And I think that's in large part because of his engagement with Adam Shanyakov's diary, which then was the reason he became such a forceful figure within Landsman Shoah. Um, and, and that sort of created a, a, a nice little connection between historical writing and the role of the historian and history and, and moving on to kind of, you know, documentary representation through documentary film. Um, I, that, that's probably not getting at the, your, your question completely, but I, I sort of trying to sidestep that question of how do we judge Jewish leaders because I, I quite often gave presentations and, and at the end of a presentation, I specifically remember at the University of Melbourne, I, I talked only about Raoul Hilberg's work and I did this at a few conferences and, and at the very end, even after I'd argued that we cannot pass judgment on Rumkowski, I had a whole conference paper on Rumkowski once and this is with the survivor memoirs and, and this is what Hilberg has done and so on. Um, and I talked about Levy and different survivors, how they judged Rumkowski. Even then, I still remember the first question I got from someone um, who'd spent their life teaching and studying the Holocaust was, so what do you think of Rumkowski? How are we going to judge him? And so I've never escaped that. And you can't escape it, but you can only keep reflexively thinking about this problem of, um, and, and it's an impossible problem because it's 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 almost a, a, a sin to put yourself into that situation and given you can never really empathise as well. Um, but that draws together again that question and what would you have done uh, again that I'll probably come back mm-hmm. to. And so, I think yeah. that this is something that, in general, your book, um, it's kind of an invitation that I, I, I took from reading um, your book, is that it's not so much about only the judgment, but it's maybe more important to take it to the next stage and what we can learn from that about human dignity, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. question of what we should do next with that. It's not what only I would do if I was at the Holocaust, but also the question of what I'm doing today. Um, what are the, the actions that, I, that we are taking and what are the, the, the actions that we choose not to take? And I think this is something that we can learn a lot um, from, or the questions that are there from the materials that you bring, we can take it to our life. And since we we come to the last part, I want to 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 shift to the last um, to the last um, uh, chapters of your book, which focus on cinema. And mm-hmm. my interest is if we can go to the more modern, um, um, like um, in the past. 20 years we have um, some incredible movies that touch the place of the privileges. I think, um, personally, I think about The Grey Zone from 2001 that um, you work a lot in your book about. And also in 2015, there is a Hungarian movie, um, um, the, the Son of Saul. Mm. And since movies and... Um, you know, Netflix and um, Amazon Prime, like the media of um, of um, an Eve story that we just had in the um, a year ago, right? With the Instagram as um, um, so, it's becoming such an important place where the young generation um, we are learning and we are thinking and feeling 
about what the Holocaust is. So I wonder if you can help us to understand more about what we can learn about privileges from this um, media and what maybe are going to be, I wonder about the future movies that are going to to come and and the role that or how we should speak or feel or create the image of the privileges. Yeah, I, I think that I'd like to go back to a quotation that probably the most used in all the things that I've published on on the Grey Zone uh, by me. Um, Levy wrote, and he, he actually wrote this at different times and he, he slightly reworded it for the essay on the Grey Zone. Uh, he wrote in that essay, from many signs it would seem the time has come to explore the space which separates the victims from their persecutors and to do so with a lighter hand and with a less turbid spirit than has, has been done for instance, in a number of films. That for me is is kind of an, a nice, nicely ironic moment and segue onto looking at cinema because it was, as I said earlier, it was the reason why I, the, the primary reason why I discovered this subject, um, dedicated a great deal of my work uh, to the Holocaust and and, and um, came to be in, in this sort of, um, this area at all given it was a film. And the interesting thing was this film, The Grey Zone by Tim Blake Nelson, which I wrote on uh, in the last chapter of the book and contrasted that with Spielberg's Schindler's List, this film, The Grey Zone, was one of the first, if not the first films that I would say formed part of what I would call elsewhere a third wave of Holocaust cinema. It's comes from the idea Annette Insdorf had of uh, two different waves. She talked about the first as as focusing on victims and persecutors, sort of setting down the the stories, the facts, factual details of what happened. And then the second wave was on rescue and resistance. And that brought in Schindler's List and, and a great deal more, you know, untold number of other films that focused on happy endings and heroic deeds in particular. And I started to think about what happened with the grey zone and beyond, even though those relatively more optimistic stories of of heroism and and sacrifice would continue, a third wave of Holocaust films that focused on trauma, guilt and compromise. And that's not specifically about so-called privileged Jews, but it did incorporate that. And uh, there was an a, amazing insight which turned out to be very true and one of the people I was reading that, that said, you know, the grey zone, uh, th- this kind of theme, this taboo issue will be explored in the coming years and that's exactly what happened. A year later, Joseph Sargent had a, a made-for-television movie on Gisela Pearl called Out of the Ashes, not quite as nuanced and complex as, as the grey zone but still engaging directly with that ethical dilemmas of privileged Jews. You also had the uh, German film Ghetto based around Jakob Gens' experiences. It was an adaptation of a, a, a really famous play um, or one of a, a trilogy of plays, an amazing film uh, that looks at Jakob Gens in a, in a really intricate and compelling way. Uh, in a sense, that and I'd say even the uh, Austrian film The Counterfeiters is probably just as impressive a representation of so-called privilege within camps and ghettos as the grey zone is of the Zonda Commando. And then you've got Son of Soul, which most recently came out 
again looking at the Zonda Commando and my latest um, my latest chapter that was published in a book about the Zonda Commando exclusively, uh, which only published last year, looks at both the Grey Zone and Son of Soul. And I felt that that was kind of a bookend to my research in this area. Who knows, I may come back to it. But uh, that, that film as well raised lots of new questions about representations or perhaps reinvigorated old questions looking but not looking at the Zonda Commando, the privileged prisoners, as privileged. Uh, so there's different ways you can read that, and I, I you know, would probably read it again differently if I watched the film just as I would The Grey Zone today. So all of these films have come out over the last 20 years, as you say, and, and I think there is a very much a an interest on the part of audiences and therefore or alongside that, an interest on the part of filmmakers to explore these often taboos, previously marginalised issues of so-called complicity or compromise, whatever words we want to use for it. The more words I use, privilege probably starts to sound relatively banal. But um, the, these issues are, have been explored in much more complex and intricate and nuanced ways through these feature films in particular, particular fiction films, um, than elsewhere. There are a number of documentaries that to varying degrees of effectiveness, I would argue, do engage with uh, the, the issue of privilege. But, uh, you know, these, these issues can be quite often, and this is what I found in my analysis of The Grey Zone, a non-literal depiction of events. The Nelson's narrative choices that moved away from the chronological facts, which merged different phenomena from very different time periods, which merged events, which moved away from who survived. You know, he actually uh, had some pressure, I believe, to focus on Miklos Nishli, who survived and made a film about him, but he didn't want to make it just another survivor, another survivor story, um, to focus on those who didn't survive, um, this, the, you know, which again kind of, you know, complicates Levy's distinction between the drowned and the saved given that so many Zonda Commando which he would certainly have classified as as damned um, to, to use his words did not survive bar a very small number so all of these kinds of things have been explored in really compelling affective but I, I think also different ways uh, that help us not fully understand will never understand but do raise that question which I end the book with and what would you have done? Because that's really the the central question that comes out of the grey zone, even though you can interpret there is some judgment of certain victims in, in more negative ways than other victims, certainly more sympathetic of the crematorium workers in the grey zone than the prisoner Dr. Miklos Nishli. And he's also in Son of Soul uh, in a very, you know, very brief but somewhat different um, portrayal in that movie. So even the, the the scenes that were left out of that film, there's, there's so many interesting things, all the little decisions, the techniques, the devices that filmmakers, just as historians and just as survivors who are you know, very literary or not so literary in their writings, they all use conventions. They rely on this paucity of language, but also the power of language because that's all we've got in the end. Um, and the visual does add a certain element. I, I, I would argue, and this is what I do in the book, 
probably more implicitly in my less confident days, that feature films, particularly fictional representations, have a certain power to explore these issues of moral ambiguity and compromise because they can immerse us in those very issues. Um, I shouldn't make a value judgment, and I tried not to in the book to say that it's better than reading history, it's better than reading survivor literature or anything like that. That's certainly not what I mean by that, but there is a certain possibility uh, that's that's to be found in Holocaust film that Levy himself probably understandably didn't get to experience. I can completely understand why Levy would be sceptical, especially as a survivor, of what Hollywood and, 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 and other film industries were doing at the time with the Holocaust. But even there, um, some of the films that he had seen, I, I've written recently about privileged Jews in the Holocaust miniseries, which was 1978, I believe, there is actually some nuance and interesting ethical dilemmas represented, albeit briefly, in that very soap opera-ish Hollywood production. So there's been a lot of remarkable things. And, And I guess the one thing that I started to almost worry about with the latest collection that's that's exclusively focused on Zonda Commandos, and there has been a number of films that have directly focused on them um, to some degree or they've become, you know, they certainly have been a part of a plot and often serve plot elements, which I go into in the book, which are political or religious um, in terms of the Christianization of the Holocaust in some films. That, that issue of the Zonda Commandos are very, for lack of a better word, appealing as a category of the most extreme of experiences we can think of. My concern that I did briefly bring up in my latest chapter, and I'm complicit in this given that my book was one of the first or to focus on this issue in this way, my concern is that now are we focusing too much? Are the Zonda Commandos, the crematorium workers, getting, as some argued even before the Grey Zone film came out, too much attention at the expense of the less um, less exceptional experience and and what does that mean so there's never any ideal but i think that there are potentially risks that go into focusing on issues of privilege uh, especially depending on the reason why it's being used and i'm not making a really clear statement there but that's sort of something that's raised in my mind that this is one aspect of of a very um, huge event that has various facets. Uh, so I, I don't want to say this is the, as as I probably made the mistake of implying in the book, that this is the essence or a crux of the Holocaust that we need to understand as its core. A lot of people have talked about this is the, the centre of the ethical dilemmas of the Holocaust and so on. Um, in some ways that's true, but I don't want to suggest that this is the most important aspect of the Holocaust either because that's probably a small risk that's being run now um, depending on one's perspective and, and engagement with all the, the attention that this is getting. I also went on during and beyond this the writing of this book to analyse uh, so-called privileged Jews in video testimony and, and so on and I, I think going to another aspect of your question where do we go from here? What will I do not know what Holocaust films will be. I've got the probably the country's most depressing DVD collection, and I'll never get to watch them all. Um, but there's so many that still come out. Um, 
I think what's really interesting to me now, given that I'm no longer a, a, a student of history and literature, and I've now, I guess, for for lack of a better word, transformed myself into a lecturer in digital media and the Holocaust is only one aspect of my research and very rarely do I do I teach any aspects of it apart from very briefly. I'm also very interested in what engagement and what representation means in a digital age, as you say, when the Holocaust survivors the 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 absolute crucial core of the power of so many museums around the world, uh, including the one that I've worked with, are uh, slowly not or gradually no longer with us. Um, that's a, if anything, all of the challenges that the memory and representation of the Holocaust has faced. That is the greatest one. So now that I'm working in the digital space to sort of segue on to something beyond this book, but something I've pointed to in recent chapters on film that now I think is something to look at is what is digital, what does a digital immersive experience of Holocaust representation entail? Uh, what do we talk about? What do we think about the um, the potential to create a gamified representation of the Holocaust, which doesn't necessarily mean a game, but there have been video and board game attempts already. So I think that what we're seeing in the world outside the Holocaust and its representation is that involving audiences in order to engage them in a participatory way, in a way that gives them agency, in a way that actually allows them choice of how to choose the narr- between narrative options or to discover uh, history in different ways uh, and other forms of education. Um, my big interest in social media, digital learning and gamification may well intersect with the Holocaust in that way. Maybe it will intersect with the representation of privileged Jews, but that's where we are now. I think that um, you you have to keep making Holocaust films because so few people now have ever seen Schindler's List and I'd be very hard-pressed to find any of my students who've seen The Grey Zone or Schindler's List. So that's sort of the next the next. Uh, adventure for lack of a better word that i may well be be situating myself on but um hopefully that answers some of your question yes for sure i we need to end but i'm thinking about um um one of the one of the educators the jewish educators today um avram infeld he say he has a sentence that he loved to say that jews don't have history jews have memory um you know in the passover night um Jews, we don't tell exactly what happened in Egypt, but what we tell is how Jews during the generations, they remember what happened in Egypt um, in, the, in the Passover Haggadah. And it's, um, it's such an existential Jewish question, right, that we try to make it alive. We try to take the history and to live it again and again. Um, in each generation, the people need to feel as if they themselves came out from Egypt. And I think that what you touch here at, um, at the last um, sentences and the media and the digital media is exactly how to maybe hold both of them, like to hold the history, but also to make people to connect with the history by creating it as a life memory. And I, I want to end, if it's okay, with... I think one of the um, one of the quotations that you bring in your book um, from the gray zone um, in the Jewish theology, there is um, 
And in the morning prayer, there is a beautiful prayer that speaks about the responsibility of community. And the words there are that the community needs to honoring the parents and, and um, providing hospitality and visiting the sick. But then there is a sentence which says, and they need to lelavot etamet, which means the translation is attending to the dead, you know, taking care on the dead of the community. But actually in Hebrew, the word lelavot, which is funeral in Hebrew, the verb of funeral is to walk with, is to accompany the dead. In a way, it's like happening before they died and not after. And I want to end it with such a powerful, powerful um, quotation in page 176 from the Gray Zone. Um, Rosenthal and Abramovich, um, two people from two Jews who are at the Zonderkommando. And Rosenthal says, it's not pulling the trigger. And Abramovich says, it's locking them in. You leave the room, bring them in, say it's safe. You will see them when it's over. Who put her inside? Now you think she made it through. God knows how. You're doing to be a hero? And Rosenthal said, not a hero. Abramovich, not a hero, not a killer. What are you, Max? Thank you so much, Adam Brown. Thank you for having me.